Today, we are going to talk about the F word, the F word, all right? And uh, it's not that F word, okay? Although I was in New York City this past week, and I was at, I walked by, I think I was in Chinatown or downtown, one of the gift shops, and I saw a very, very crass, but also kind of creative shirt that had the other F word in every possible word usage on there. And um, that's not the F word we're going to be getting into. We're going to be getting into another F word that should really describe and mark all of us, um, us here as God's people, and that word is forgiveness. Um, forgiveness is too often just a concept. It's, it's a theological uh, thing to study, um, and um, that shouldn't be the case because we are not only called, we'll get into it, but we're commanded to be a people who forgive one another, who forgive those even outside of Christ who offend us, um, but there's a problem. When the time comes to actually have opportunities to forgive, we're often repulsed by the idea. And I don't think that's a strong statement. I, I've heard, I've counseled people, I've, I've, heard, I've just dealt with people, I've dealt with my, myself, and that feeling of just being repulsed that I, I gotta forgive that guy, or I gotta forgive that gal for this heinous sin committed against me. As we sang, um, our strength is small but God's grace is big. And so this, this reality that forgiveness must not only come alive in our hearts, but it must come alive uh, practically in our lives, um, it can happen. It's a beautiful thing when it does. Uh, but listen to what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, which I love. I've read over many times. He says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Today, we're going to look at a passage where Jesus teaches his disciples, of course, on how it, you know, what forgiveness looks like and how often it should be granted, but basically, he's just teaching his disciples how to be more like him. So, if you guys and gals could please just join me in another word of prayer. Father, we thank you for gathering us. Thank you for being who you are. Uh, thank you for loving us, um, knowing us um, intimately and, and what we are and um, what we're all about and who we are. And thank you for sending your son and going to such lengths to forgive us and reconcile us with yourself. Pierce and soften our hearts today so we can hear and obey. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts here together be pleasing, be acceptable to you, O Lord, our, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, by the way, my wife wanted to be here, um, and she's actually somewhere out there. She had a headache um, because she, we, we sat to two services already, and um, yeah, she really wanted to be worshiping with us, but she, she just took a, an Advil and was resting in the car, so uh, she apologizes for not being here. So uh, I'm going to read John, uh, Luke 17 in a moment, but I just want to give you the three points that I hope will help us better understand the text. Um, and actually, this, this text is... This sermon is an exposition to some degree, but also just kind of topical, so it'll be a mixture of both, and uh, I hope it'll be helpful to, to all of us. But here are the... Oh, how'd, you, how'd that happen? Uh, I, I heard um, projections weren't going to happen today, but thank you so much for making it happen because there's a lot of projections. Uh, I was just about to say I can send you my notes. I could send Pastor John or, or Param the notes, and you can get it out to you. But uh, those are the three points. Sin abounds. So offenses will abound. Offenses are not to be taken lightly. And point three, Christians must not be trapped in unforgiveness. 
let's open to Luke 17, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. And we're reading from the Christian Standard Bible, at least I will be. Then he said to his disciples, Offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and, if, and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Sin abounds, so offenses will abound. What does it mean that sin abounds? It means that there's a whole lot of it. It is bountiful in number, it's bountiful in amount, and it's manifested in a myriad of ways. And why is this so? It's so because the Bible tells us that we inherited this sinful nature. It's at the core of who we are. And because we are sinful in our nature, we have imputed to us all the corruption all the, the, the negative credit, so to speak. In Christ, we've been imputed his righteousness, right? God imputes to us Christ's righteousness, his perfect standing. In Adam, we have imputed to us corruption and death and sin. And we, as followers of Christ, um, even though we are in Christ, until that day when this body is no, well, until that day when we're living on the other side of eternity, we will engage willfully in sinful acts because of this flesh. The old and the new, from the beginning to the end, describe this plight, the situation. Psalm 51.5, David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and, my, and in sin my mother conceived me. Romans 3.23, perhaps you have it memorized if you were the navigator's type of person, right? Um, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A little earlier in Romans 3.10, Paul writes, as it is written, none, none is righteous. No, not one. Solomon, potentially the, 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 the wisest discerning person in the world, although you, you kind of scratch your head <laughs> in thinking about what later happened in his life, and you wonder, was he that discerning and, and wise? Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good, never sins. The prophet Isaiah, we have all become like one who is unclean, like a filthy rag. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, like a filthy rag. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Sin abounds, so offenses will abound. If, if you're not a follower of Christ, or if you're skeptical about this idea that, you know, we're totally depraved, that emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, we're, we're corrupted, just, just turn on, well, you don't even have to turn on the 11 o'clock news anymore. I'm dating myself. Just go to your Twitter feed, and you will see how corrupt we are, how corrupt our institutions are, our systems are, our, our, our organizations, and even our churches to, to a degree. There's corruption out there, all over, everywhere. Why? And this we can't forget. 
because right here inside of us, there's corruption. And when all these corrupt beings make up a corrupt group or corrupt institution or corrupt system or corrupt government, there's corruption. There's, that's just the manifestation of sin. It's just out there. I, I worshiped with Doxa right before uh, New Hope's gathering right now. Two incredibly beautiful babies, uh, pretty newborn, well, infants, right? Um, toddlers, uh, infants, <laughs> three months old and like five months old. Um, I reminded their parents that they are as cute as can be, but they are not. They are not. They are not. Not sinners. <laughs> Why can't I uh, get that out? Um, they, are, they are sinners, right? In their nature and in their will, and it's, it's showing. I, I asked them, I said, hey, have you noticed, like, you know, them being a little kind of resistant or stubborn about diaper changes or about feeding? They need their diapers changed. They need to be fed for, for nourishment. But they start fighting and they start rebelling. And I said, wait till they get a little older. <laughs> you're in for a surprise. Or maybe you're not. It's... It wasn't taught them. They're doing everything they can to nurture and, and raise their children in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord, teaching them, you know, just to be nice and pleasant and loving on them and doting on them, but it's inside coming out. I remember my, 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 my third daughter, Bethany, um, when she was like a year and a half, two, about maybe two years old, her rebellion towards us was just freezing into a statue. I kid you not. She would just freeze for 10, 15, 20 minutes at a time. It was like we thought there was something wrong with her, and we were thinking of like getting her checked up, but it was just her way of rebelling against mom and dad. I have pictures of her because she continued that till she was like five, and she would just like freeze in the hallway if we asked her to do something or if we scolded her or reprimanded her or, you know, brought the Ikea stick, which was our rod of discipline, right? The Ikea shoehorn. Um, I mean, that's, that was her reaction. It, sin abounds because it flows out of who we are by nature and also by will. R.C. Sproul puts it like this. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's the whole chicken or the egg kind of scenario, right? Uh, dilemma. Uh, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. If you disagree with this, the Bible even addresses your disagreement in 1 John 1 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And this sin that abounds is ultimately, ultimately, and primarily an offense towards God. David, I already quoted from Psalm 51, but if you read verses 1 through 4, after he commits Adultery against his wife Abigail, he commits. Uh, he potentially he, he potentially raped Bathsheba. We're not sure if he either raped her or if it was a, you know, kind of takes two to tango type of deal. We don't know. We don't know. So please uh, don't like get on Twitter and be like that guy said this or this about, you know, the whole David and Bathsheba sinful situation. And then he murdered Uriah, who was the Hittite, the husband of of, of Bathsheba. He committed treason against the entire nation of Israel. But what does he pray? What does he plead to God for? Against you, you only, in Psalm 51, verse 4, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So it's primarily an offense against God 
And the degree against this holy, holy, holy God is, is, I mean, just unspeakably heinous, breaking his covenant, um, failing to live as his image bearer, exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for something less like an idol. But guess what? It also affects those around us. This infestation and corruption of sin, it goes out everywhere. And that leads us to our next point. Point one was sin abounds, so offenses will abound. Point two is offenses are not to be taken lightly. Offenses are not to be taken lightly. I'm going to reread the beginning of um, this passage. Um, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. It would be better for a millstone... And I think a millstone, a picture of it's going to go up there right now. It would be better for that thing which weighs hundreds of pounds to be put around a person who would cause uh, one of these little ones, you know, someone young in the faith, to stumble. That millstone, which weighs hundreds of pounds, was a a round stone that was used. It was pulled by a donkey in a circular fashion to uh, crush uh, wheat into grain, a gr- it, it, it crushed grain into flour. Sometimes it was used to, to crush olives into oil. And Jesus tells his followers, it'd be better for someone to be thrown into the sea with that thing around your neck than for you to cause someone else to stumble. That's pretty serious. You know, offenses... Um, uh, leading someone to, and tempting someone to, to, to fall and stumble into sin and to offend God and to offend others is serious, serious business that should not be taken lightly. And then let's move on and hear what else he has to say. In verse 3, he tells his followers, be on your guard, right? Pay attention to yourselves is how the English Standard uh, Version translates it. Be on your guard if your brother sins rebuke him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. The word of God, Jesus himself doesn't, and the red letters of Jesus don't hold more weight than the non-red letters, by the way, but the words of Jesus, the word doesn't mince words when it comes to calling out and rebuking, rebuking sin. We can't turn a blind eye towards sin. We can't take it lightly. We can't simply let bygones be bygones, according to the world's kind of wisdom and philosophies, right? To err is human, so we should just let it go, right? No. No. I've heard theologians describe sin as being a spiritual cancer. Taking cancer lightly will result in in death, destruction. We can't take cancer lightly, so we can't take spiritual cancer lightly, because once it, 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 it grabs a hold of cells and grabs a hold of you, I'm not a scientist, okay, so I'm not even going to try to go there, but it just multiplies, and it breeds itself with one purpose, to kill and to destroy. So offenses are not to be taken lightly because it leads to death, and it's neither compassionate nor loving towards a brother or sister who is living a life of sin steeped in Um, uh, habitual sin. It's not loving or compassionate to leave that person alone. 
Jesus says, and we talked about confrontation last week, not only giving or confronting others, but wanting to be confronted because we have sin in our lives and we want to grow. Is Jesus just affirming what I preached last week? God says so clearly that he disciplines the son he loves. And often he does it through the discipline that we bring to one another as prescribed in the word of God for the sake of reconciliation, for the sake of restoration. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. But then what else does Jesus say? If he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you have the option of forgiving him. You can choose to forgive if it's the sixth or seventh time. No, you must forgive him. It's a command. It's not just a calling. It's a command that we must forgive him. And that leads us to our third point, which is a little, this is where we're going to dwell for a little while longer than the first two points. But point number three is Christians must not be trapped in unforgiveness. We must not be trapped in unforgiveness. Jesus says, if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Those of you who are a little bit more familiar with the word of God, you might be, I don't know, one, you're, well, Jesus contradicts himself here, or the Bible does, because I've heard it was, I think with Brother Dan, I was talking, and, and he mentioned, you know, seven, 70 times, or seven times, 77 times, seven times, seven 70 times 7, right? 490 times. Which is it? It's all of those things. The point is it's a literary device that Jesus is using to say your forgiveness must be pretty generous. You must not be stingy. I would say your forgiveness should be pretty limitless perhaps because that is what God desires of you. In the Jewish tradition, to forgive someone three times, I think in a day, was like exemplary. It was like, if you did that, man, you were hitting it, <laughs> hit, hitting it off the charts in terms of just your obedience and faithfulness to the Torah or, or God's law. But here, Jesus goes beyond that And he says, you must be limitless in your forgiveness. If someone, you know, sins against you and repents, you are to forgive. Why is my point Christians must not be be trapped in unforgiveness when it's the perpetrator or the the offender or the sinner who's bringing this sin that, that I have to deal with, that I have to forgive? Well, Well, I'm going to tell you why first, and then tell you what Jesus uses to show us an incredible thing. Um, It's because this is who we are. Colossians 3, 12 and 13, we're God's chosen ones. We're holy and beloved, and we're called to 
have compassionate hearts, to be kind, humble, meek, and patient, bearing with one another if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Ephesians 4.32, in another place, Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is why we must not be trapped in unforgiveness, because we have been forgiven so much. We have been forgiven so much, and so when we pray, Father in heaven, forgive us our debts, right away we remind ourselves, this is how Jesus taught his followers to pray, forgive us our debts as we Forgive us our debts at... <laughs> yes, <laughs> sorry, my brain is like a little fried. <laughs> Forgive us our trespasses, that's why, because I learned it as trespass when I was a kid going to Catholic school. My Southern Baptist pastor father sent me to Catholic school and totally confused me, okay? <laughs> forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? It's because we are God's holy and beloved chosen people. We've been redeemed. We've been reconciled. We've been made holy and beloved through God's forgiveness. This is who we are. So we can't be trapped in a place where we're not living out our identity. But instead of practicing this, instead of living it it out in the practical realm of life, we, we do often quite the opposite. We make a list of the debts that are owed to us, right? Like, this guy offended me this way, so that's a debt that he owes. This gal, this person, my parents, my brother, my friend, or he used to be my friend. We, we make this list. That's, you know, like listing out, your, tracking your debts, that's not a bad thing in the financial realm, but in the spiritual realm, when it comes to the Christian life, where, the, where, where, we, where we operate on, on these currencies of grace and love and forgiveness, it will not turn out well for us to keep track of debts. And this is why. And this is where it kind of gets neat, at least when I was studying the passage. Um, I kind of zoomed in on this, and it really convicted me and taught me a lot. In this passage, Jesus sneaks in a warning to us about what our lack of forgiveness will result in. In verse 17, I'm just going to go track back to verse 1, uh, chapter 17, 1. He says, He said to his disciples, Offenses will certainly come. Offenses will certainly come, right? Being sinned against, again, I've said it again and again, is inevitable. Being offended is in- inevitable because of who we are, our sin nature. However, living as offended people, God's people, is a choice that we make. Being offended and experiencing offense towards us is inevitable, but living and holding on to that that bitterness and that resentment and that anger and that sin, because you cannot, you have not forgiven, (coughs) excuse me, that is our choice. That is our choice. Brothers and sisters and friends who are visiting, you will be hurt. And I'm not trying to downplay 
or take away from the, the profound nature of some of the hurt that you've experienced. Again, we live in a broken world. We live in a sin-infested and sin-corrupted world. But holding on to those hurts and giving those hurts a place where they will just fester and breed and spread like gangrene, that is a bad choice. That's a sinful choice. Look at what Jesus does. This is where it gets kind of cool. Jesus provides for us a word picture here in verse 1. Look it up in your commentaries. Um, your, your, your Bible helps. The Greek word for offenses that Jesus uses all the time <clears throat> and that all the other um, New Testament authors use is the word scandalon. Scandalon. Is it up there? Yes. And um, I often mispronounce my Greek words. I took it twice and I did worse the second time around, believe it or not. <clears throat> but that's the word scandalon. You hear, you hear the, the, the English word scandalous, right? Now, what this means, literally, is the movable stick or trigger of a trap, the trap stick, right? Or it can be a trap or a snare altogether. You guys ever seen, like, those old-school traps, right? Um, I grew up um, 32 Park Avenue, Rutherford, New Jersey. We lived in, um, it was Roach Motel, um, basically, where we grew up. Uh, but I found out my wife, who lived in the town over, I didn't know she was living in the town. She, she not only lived in the Roach Motel, but the Mouse um, uh, Motel. And I recall, like, you know, we had mouse traps and whatnot. And, and you see it on the mouse trap, that little, that little piece that they put the bait on. And when, the, when the, the mouse or the rat hits that, it trips the, right? And it, you know, yeah, it springs onto the, the leg or the body. It's, it's pretty grotesque. I've seen mice get pretty messed up with strong mousetraps. But the old school traps where it's, you know, like a, a little box, right? Um, fence box or even just a, a wooden box. And you prop it up on one side with a stick and you put a bait inside there, some food. And when the animal, when the fox or the coyote comes near it, hits the stick inadvertently and he gets trapped. That's what Jesus is showing us, pointing out to us. He's saying, offenses will certainly come if you don't forgive those offenses that come your way against you, you will be trapped. You will be put in a place where you cannot experience God and perhaps his will for you in the sense of, he, he, he wants to use you, and he, he desires to, to grow you and show you things, but you're stuck in that trap. You're living in bitterness, in resentment, in anger that hasn't been given over to God and dealt with by forgiving. That's the picture that Jesus brings out, and that's what Jesus commands his disciples not to do. You know, the the deceiver, Satan, he's our adversary. He's our enemy. He tempts us, I believe, (laughs) and he lays traps all over the place in the form of unforgiveness. And he desires for us to be like a caged animal that's stuck in someone else's, our past too, but in someone else's sin that, that was brought upon us. Satan prowls around looking for 
for someone to devour. And I believe these are some of the ways and some of the weapons that he uses to cause us not only to stumble, but to destroy lives and relationships. Because we can't get out of this, this trap. Unforgiveness is, is, is holding us. It's, 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 it's grabbing our legs and it's, it's got us completely covered within that place. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, here's the solution. In fighting and resisting your adversary, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves to his command, motivated by his grace, his love. We love because he first loved us. We forgive because he first forgave us. And be free. Be free from Satan. Be free from this sin. That's God's desire. Bitterness and resentment are the weapons that Satan uses to keep us stuck in this painful um, pattern of revisiting and rehashing someone else's offense against us. Are you there? Are you stuck? Do you need help? If you do, call out to God first and be humble enough to call out to the means of grace that God has put in your lives, whether that be a discipleship group leader, your spouse, your, <clears throat> your son or daughter who may be a mature follower of Christ, to your pastor, whoever that, wherever that help might come, reach out, seek help. Are, are, you, are you withholding forgiveness um, from your parents? I'm just going to throw things out there so that we can start kind of generating, you know, the brain fluids. <laughs> Mine are a little slow tonight. I'm sorry. But were, were your parents <clears throat> abusive towards you? Did they emotionally abuse you? Did they physically abuse you? I was a, a literal rag doll growing up. My father, he was... You just beat me to oblivion. Were, they, were your parents too lax with you? Did you want, like, love and, and, and boundaries and rules and order in your house, and you didn't get it? So they were too lax, right? That, that can exasperate our kids. That can cause, that can be reason for, you know, offense. What, what was it? Were they completely indifferent and unloving and uncaring and never there for you? What are you withholding? What kind of unforgiveness are you withholding from your parents? How about your children? I shared a little bit about my, my life and my kids. I've got four with us. And um, man, if my wife were here, she would tell you, sometimes I just hold grudges against my kids. As sad as that sounds, as pathetic as that sounds, I will hold grudges against them because I'd be thinking, man, you ingrates. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because it's, it's ridiculous, kind of. You ingrates, like, how could you not be more grateful? How could you not be, have more of a desire to help your mom or help your dad or help your brother or help your sister when we help you so much? Or, or when, when your kids, like, disobey you, right? You're just like, <sighs> for me... When my kids, this, this, is, um, this is what really gets me, 
and gets me to a very sinful place. Um, when my kids obey me, but without honoring me. Have you ever had that? It's like, you know, they'll, they'll obey you, but they'll do it with like a frown and a scowl on their face, and they'll, they'll just go through the motions, and you're just like, forget it. Don't do it, you know? Like, I've, I've been in some bad places and some horrible places where I have had to actually seek forgiveness after the kids have sinned against me. I've fired back at them tenfold. What is it? Is it a friend who screwed you over for a guy or a gal or betrayed your confidence? Is it a pastor who spiritually abused you or committed a moral failure and disappointed you? What are you hold- to whom are you withholding forgiveness? Maybe your spouse, maybe, I don't know, whoever it was. And by no means am I just flying through this to, to, to lighten this heavy stuff because it's deep and it's heavy And I know that many of you here have been profoundly sinned against and offended. But the fact of the matter still remains. You've been chosen and loved and redeemed and made holy to be purveyors and practicing people of forgiveness because Christ has forgiven you. So what I want to do in just the final few moments is I want to, I believe that we don't fully understand what that practically looks like, what forgiveness looks like. And and most specifically, because this was very helpful to me in my journey of understanding and going deeper in forgiveness, not just the concept, not just the theological, you know, the theory, but also the practice, what, what misconceptions that we might have about forgiveness, right? Um, so I'm going to go through eight. I think they'll be posted if you guys uh, projected, if you guys want to follow along. Because um, we don't want to erect uh, obstacles or barriers or hindrances that will prevent us from forgiving because we thought forgiveness should look like this or should result in that and so on and so forth, right? So, so number one, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not Forgetting, forgetting. We've heard that, that saying, right? You forgive and forget. You forgive and forget because that's what God does, in fact. I don't know if God does that. I don't know if that's what the Bible is saying in Hebrews and Isaiah and Jeremiah, and you'll see the, the verses up there, I think, when, when it says that I will remember their sins and their lost deeds no more. And when it says that he plot, blots out our transgressions and will not remember our sins. Jeremiah, it's all over the Bible and it's so comforting, and it's, it's pretty incredible, but I don't think that God jettisons his omniscience to forget our sins. I think what the Bible is, is, is talking about here is that God no longer sees us in that way and deals with us on the basis of, of us being sinners. He deals with us and he relates to us on the basis of the righteousness of Christ that we now have solely by the work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Forgiveness for us doesn't mean that we wipe out kind of like our cash memory of all the sins. I I don't think that's the case because I think that's pretty impossible. So forgiveness is not forgetting. It is actively choosing not to relate to a person based upon their sin against us as God relates to us actively based upon 
the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But it's not forgetting. It's not forgetting. Number two, forgiveness is not waiting for an apology. You don't have to wait for someone to say, hey, Juan, I'm really sorry about what I did to you. Please forgive me. Why? Because there's a command to repent, to seek forgiveness, right? But there's also a command to forgive. And these commands, they run on two separate rails. And it doesn't really matter if this rail happens to intersect with that rail. It doesn't. Because the fact of the matter is, there are people in your life who will go to their grave never having asked you for forgiveness. That's just going to happen. So does that mean you are no longer culpable for granting forgiveness? Uh Uh-uh. It means that you do it unilaterally and it's valid. You forgive even when the person is not experiencing sorrow or, or the right kind of shame and guilt for sin and seeking you know, God's forgiveness, but also yours. Forgiveness is not waiting for an apology. You don't have the option of waiting for an apology because that is what the Bible calls for us to do. Waiting for that apology may leave you stuck in that particular unforgiveness trap to the day you die. Number three, forgiveness is not ceasing to feel pain. Sometimes people have this misguided notion that, oh, once I, once I forgive that person and, and release that person and get myself out of this tr- bitterness trap and resentment trap, I'm going to, I mean, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more shame, no, you know, all this kind of good stuff, right? I don't think the Bible teaches us that. Because Jesus in the second to last chapter of the last book of the Bible, this is on my daughter's epitaph, right, on her rock, Revelation 21.4, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Jesus says, I'm going to do that when I return. That means, it seems to mean that there's going to be pain, sorrow, hurt in profound ways. This side of heaven, until he comes again, So I can't imagine us, you know, having this kind of um, understanding that forgiveness means that we will cease to feel the pain of that offense and that, you know, like consequences go deep at times, right? Fourth misconception, forgiveness is not a one-time event. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. This, whoa, when I realized this, because someone in the past told me it's a one-time shot and once you do it, it's, it's done and over with. I wasn't experiencing that <laughs> in, in real-time life. As a matter of fact, it was like, kind of like the waves of the ocean on the seashore, right? On the shore, just it would come and, and crash on the shore. Sometimes it would be like a huge kind of tsunami-like tidal wave that the surfers enjoy, but you know, most normal people, and I can't swim very well, don't really you know, like too much. Or sometimes it was just like, you know, like a trickling water that would just barely make it up the shore. Have you ever been in that place where it just, it's like a flood of memories? When you thought you had let it go and, for, and forgiven, and then it's just, it's just filling your mind and, and just overflowing in your heart, and you find yourself going back into that scenario where you were offended. I heard the story of this husband and wife 
they were both believers, and um, the wife had um, committed adultery um, against her husband, and they received counseling, and, you know, they, essentially, they, they wanted to heal their marriage, they wanted to, 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 to restore their marriage, and they were good. They were living a vibrant, uh, wonderful Christian marriage, covenant marriage relationship, but the husband shared of how every so often in un- unexpected moments, he would just look over in, in the church of all places and see his wife just talking in a very, you know, uh, a very appropriate way with another man, and the memories would flood his mind, and he would find himself just rehashing and revisiting and resenting her for that adultery that was like a couple decades prior. And that's when he understood that he needed to be forgiving her again and again and again. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. The glory of our forgiveness is that it is a one-time event, right? When, when we trusted in Christ Jesus, when we, when we repented, um, we were justified. So that aspect of, you know, uh, our, our standing in Christ was a one-time event, but I think Martin Luther was the one who said all of life is repentance, right? In his first of 95 theses that he put up on that, that church door in Wittenberg. We experience and therefore we grant and bestow forgiveness again and again and again. It's not a one-time event. Forgiveness is not trusting. Um, I think it can be a strength but also a great weakness I think sometimes, uh, I, I basically, I'm quick to lend, to, to give over trust to people. Um, in other words, I'm just a sucker, <laughs> right? I'm kind of on the gullible side. Uh, sometimes it's a fear of man thing where I just, you know, I'll give over trust because I'm fearing what they're going to think about me and, and so on and so forth, and I want to look a certain way. Uh, anyway, forgiveness is not trusting. The, 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 it, for, if you forgive someone who has sinned against you in a way that affects your relationship and how that relationship moves forward, you do not, like your trust barometer does not have to hit a certain level in order for that forgiveness to be valid, right? Um, I read this. If a family member or a friend um, does something pretty heinous and like, you know, molests your kid, does that mean after you forgive that person, that you need to have that person in your home babysitting your kids? <laughs> Absolutely not. That is a, that's a wisdom discernment thing. It would be wrong for you to, to put your children in that situation and to trust that everything's going to be okay because forgiveness has been granted. Forgiveness is not trusting. It is not trusting. Trust is something that builds slowly over time. Right? It's gained slowly between two people, between two, whatever, right? But it, it's lost quickly, unfortunately. That's just the fact of the matter, right? Forgiveness is not trusting. Forgiveness is not, recon- is not reconciliation. This was a, a game changer for me, too. Forgiveness is not necessarily 
reconciliation. Romans 12, 18, Paul writes, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Sure. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But reconciliation is, is that it takes two to tango dance deal. If that party does not want to be reconciled, no matter how much you forgive, there's not going to be reconciliation. That was, oh, man, it was just so enlightening for me because I hadn't experienced reconciliation with some people that I had forgiven. And so I thought, man, this is not done. There's something wrong. I'm, I'm sinning. But I realized that wasn't the case. Forgiveness is not necessarily or does not necessarily result in reconciliation. Seven, forgiveness is not approving of or diminishing sin or enabling sin. I think we went over that already, but um, forgiveness, when you forgive someone for sin, you are not condoning it, you are not excusing it, you are not turning a blind eye toward it. In fact, the Bible what the Bible does and what the Bible teaches us, and this is a very good practice for us to employ, is um, you, you, you address specific sins with specific forgiveness, right? Really. The Bible lists sins, calls out specific sins, and then calls for the forgiveness of specific things, sins. So forgiveness is not approving of diminishing sin or enabling sin, uh, nothing like that. We need to get that out of our minds. And lastly, forgiveness, and this is where we'll end, is not neglecting justice. It's not. There's a huge difference between forgiving someone of offenses and enacting justice, right? And what I want to say um, kind of bluntly is you can, you can forgive someone and still call the authorities, you can forgive someone and still be good and satisfied with justice being meted out. Really, we serve a just God. We serve a God who sent his son to be the just, the one and only propitiation that would satisfy his holy justice. So when it comes to the gospel picture, when it comes to, to, to this bigger picture of forgiveness, this is a promise that we have from God. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, Romans 12, 19, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So vengeance is the Lord, is the Lord. So we should leave room for him to enact his justice. Really. And this is really neat, because if a sinner... If a Christian sins against you, that's, that Christian, believe it or not, has already been forgiven of the offense against you. Forgiven by Almighty God. Think about this. When you withhold forgiveness from that sinner, you are basically saying, yeah, God can forgive you, but I'm not going to forgive you. That is what we're doing. And God promises that for those who are in Christ, justice has been served through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. And guess what, guess what else he says? For those who are not in Christ, justice will be served. It will be satisfied. They will experience God's vengeance on that day. 
And all this because God forgave us a debt that we owed but could not pay. And that's our hope. Our hope is in the gospel. Our hope is, is in knowing that we were forgiven this debt um, that we could not deal with on our own. That we needed an external answer to, an external solution to, and that solution was Jesus Christ. You know where Jesus is in Luke 17? Since Luke 9, he has, he, he, uh, um, he just turned towards the direction of Jerusalem and he's making a beeline to the cross. And he's, you know, next week is, is um, um, Palm Sunday. We're two chapters away from Jesus making that triumphal entry. He would be going to serve as the one who would shed his blood for the propitiation, for the washing, for the forgiveness of sins. That is what we base our forgiveness of others on. That is the power that gives us the ability, to, the ability, even when we don't want it, even when we don't want to because the emotions aren't there, it gives us the will and the strength and the wherewithal to obey and to allow the Spirit of God to deal with the emotions that often lag behind. I was going to read something about Corey Ten Boom, but I don't want to keep you here any longer. Um, I can share it with Fromm, and he can email it to you guys. But an amazing story of forgiveness. Corey uh, and a you know, Nazi prison camp officer that I'll share with you uh, online. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us this time. Uh, Lord, speak to these dear brothers and sisters and, and even guests, maybe people here who are curious about what this gift of grace and what this, who this Jesus is all about and what we all know that this world would be a better place if there was forgiveness, but what this deep, deep forgiveness of uh, sin and uh, reconciliation with not only one another but with with you, O oh God, what this means and, and, and how we can attain this, um, help them to know that it's, it's not by our, it's not by our uh, merit, it's not by our doing, uh, it's not by our um, striving, but it's by your, your mercy and your grace. And Lord, I pray that it will be by your mercy and grace that we'd be able to be forgiving people, a people who... Um, see how great you are and um, the lengths uh, to which you went, uh, Father, to, to save us and to forgive us uh, of our sins. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.